Activist, educator and feminist, Joki Jehu is co-founder of Daughters of Mumbi Global Resource Centre, the coordinator of the Pan-African Fight Inequality Alliance, and she's worked with many of the world's leading NGOs. She's testified three times before the US Congress on debt, HIV-AIDS and other crises facing Africa. She's based in Nairobi, Kenya, where she was brought up by a mother who farmed and father who bought and sold cars. Her local church awarded her a scholarship to study in the United States, and that kick-started her career. She's been profiled and quoted since in media ranging from the New York Times and Washington Post to the Financial Times and Sankei Shimbun, and she's a highly sought-after speaker. Her fear is failing to build on the progress made by the campaigners who went before her, most notably her mother. Some people just take liberties about their own power, their own influence, their own wealth, um, whether it is um, against women, whether it is against young people, whether it's against impoverished countries in terms of the policies that are made. Um, that, that is of real concern to me on an ongoing basis because it is not by accident. There is, there is thought, there is policy, there is design, there is planning. I mean, people plan to do these kinds of violations, and that is not acceptable. Um, you worked with lots of women as well, one-on-one, -on -one, haven't you, um, with your work in Kenya. Mm -hmm. um, which are the stories that you most remember, which will stay with you and that you use when you do your public speaking as well? Well, I, I have many stories of women who, in, you know, they don't see themselves as heroes or the, as making these huge decisions or um, doing th things that will inspire other people in the way that I've been inspired or the, in the way that people are inspired when I tell the stories. But I think uh, w one of my heroes really truly is my mother. She's 81, she just turned 81 this month. Um, and she had, has always been active in her community and in her church. And um, in the Anglican Church of Kenya, one of the, um, high, the, the highest decision-making body is something called the Synod, where people come together, I think, every two years and talk about church policy and all of that. And my mother was one of the first women to be elected. To, see, to attend the Synod, both as a woman and also as a lay person. It was, it was groundbreaking. And she tells the stories of those experiences, of going and being with clergy, male clergy, who expected her to serve them when tea break came or things like that, and how she had to stand her ground and say, I'm here in my own right. At this committee, we are committee members and we are here to do the work that is set for us to do, not for me to serve you tea or serve you lunch. Um, and that sense of dignity and... Um, injustice. Injustice, but also a sense of her own right to be there. Because I think sometimes for women, we end up in rooms where we are tokens. And so we are already disempowered and we are not able, you're not able to stand your ground. So in fact, you do go there and you think, oh, maybe I, I am the only woman or I'm one of the few women because these men needed someone to serve them tea. But for her to stand her ground, which she continually has done in public and in private within family circles to stand for, for justice and to say this is, even if, um, 
she's the only voice, you know. There was a saying in the old days of the Green Belt movement about popular opinion notwithstanding. So to take that stand when you know that you may be standing alone, but you're sure in your and you and you're confident that you're making the right the right choice. Um, I've met other women who similarly, and they don't see them, you know, they don't wear capes, they don't see themselves as heroes or doing anything earth-moving or earth-shaking in terms of what they talk about or the things that they, they do. But they, in very small and uh, consistent and everyday ways, being examples, being role models, not because they think I'm a role model, not because they think anyone is watching, but because they have that integrity to do the right thing even when no one is watching. So um, your mother was your role model. My very first one. Um, so is the fear that drives you um, facing the injustice that she faced when she was going to church? for example well yeah a little bit to understand that 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 the 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 battle hasn't been won you know and uh i'm in a in a bit better uh well actually vastly better uh, position than she was i have an education i've traveled the world i have been exposed my mother has a fifth grade education um and she uh, she's quite accomplished in, in, in many, many ways. But, you know, the idea that to one whose much is given, much is expected, that is something that um, for me drives me, that I, I, I can't be blind or deaf to injustice or to the things that, that go on and not take a stand. But you don't want to let your mother down either I, in the work that she began. No, absolutely. I do not want to let her down. I do not want to, to let my grandmother and other women who fought very hard and who didn't have the opportunities that I have had. Um, but also that I feel not in their shadow, but really inspired by them. And But also that... I have to go farther than they have been able to go to be able to um, both give a voice to their struggles and the issues that they have that they have faced, but also to make sure that the education, the sacrifices that so many people have made for me to be where I am are not in vain, that I give back. That um, when I went to college in the US, um, the woman who helped me get a scholarship, I, her name is Jane Watkins, and I said, thank you, thank you. I don't know what I will do to repay you. She said, you don't need to do to pay me back. You need to find someone else and help them, and, you know, in the same way that I've helped you. And so uh, part of the work that I do in addition to working with women is to mentor young people so that they, they, they get a sense of what they can achieve, which really... Um, for the young people that I work with, they are often not, they are not hearing uh, many messages saying you can be anything that you want to be, that you can achieve. They come from low-income families. They've had a lot of challenges. They have, they've had a lot of disadvantages. And for them, you know, to have someone saying, um, you matter, what you know and what you can do is important and you should aspire to do more. That for me is a really important message to send. Um, yeah, what is the key thing that you can teach someone who doesn't have the confidence that they can actually break out and be a success mm -hmm. like you? Because your story isn't that 
you, you aren't from a very affluent background. Your father was a car dealer. Your mother was a farmer. Yeah. Uh, you broke out, so you're an inspiring figure yourself. But what can you teach others to say that you can do it too? Well, I think um, sometimes just having somebody encourage you and say what you know and what you do is important and uh, that you can um, do things with it. And um, some of it is, I, when I, uh, 13 years ago, I moved back from the U.S. to Kenya and I started a small women's network called Daughters of Mumbi Global Resource Center. And one of the things that we've, really taken seriously about the name is this idea of the resource and it's about the resources that we can bring so whether it's when we do the mentorship seminars to bring people who are quite ordinary who have very ordinary stories to set, tell who started humble humble beginnings you know uh, uh, one guy who when he went for his first job interview at a shoe company, he went footless and he wrote, rose to be managing director. Um, and he was local. He was he had gone to a school locally that people that those young children can identify. So, I mean, part of it is that the stories they hear and the people that they're exposed to are stories that are believable. Um, you know, having lived in the U.S. for many years, they, it, it, you can tell that story and for some of them they say, well, to be like you, I would have to go and live in the U.S. for 20 which years. Which they can't imagine. Which they can't imagine and they, it probably wouldn't happen. But when I bring someone like that, you know, when we are talking about drugs and substance abuse, mm -hmm. I bring somebody who was a lawyer, trained as a lawyer, successful lawyer, fell from grace to zero because of drug abuse, has now picked himself up he is a member of the clergy and he can talk from experience so that they don't just see the the drug addict the local drug addict or the local drunkard and they think oh i will never be like him sleeping you know falling down drunk on the on the roadside but they see someone who says i w i had everything going for me my family did everything give me an education and because of drug abuse I fell and I fell flat. I was one of those people who were on the roadside. So that kind of connection. So it's it's not so much about necessarily my inspiring story, but it is making connecting the dots so that they can um, they can get to tell their story. They can get to hear other people's um, other people's stories. They see. Um, old woman in the community who they don't, you know, young people don't think that old people are ever young or that they ever did anything with their lives. And they meet this woman who was a, an administrator in one of the prisons. And they can't, you know, their eyes get big because they can't, I mean, they know him, they know her as a grandmother in the church, you know, so they, it's, it's about those connections so that people can begin to imagine what can be different yes. and who they can be, who is different from where they, 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 they think they're headed. Um, are you able to use their past experience as a way of driving them forward to say, you know, you've got a choice, you go forward or you go back and therefore use that fear of going back to drive them forward? Um, in church, I go to church, but the, the messages that kids are getting in church are not really, you know, it's about if you do this, you will go to hell. I mean, and there's not, there's not a very... 
uh, what's the word I'm looking, there's not a very actually uh, realistic um, way of explaining, of, of dealing with the reality of the kids, that they will be tempted, that there will be drugs available to them, that there will be alcohol. And they talk about it. I mean, they, they mm. talk about from, you know, six-year-olds where they, they go and taste uh, beer or whatever else, and they know that it is wrong, but there's, there's not anyone who has talked to them in that way that is not about punishing or mm. about condemning them. So, in fact, we often start by talking. I talk with them about uh, the difference between a secret and confidentiality because there are lots of kids that I know that who know me, I know their parents, so they are going to be sharing things that they would be worried would get back to their parents. So we say we the, the difference between a secret and confidentiality saying we will not share about that Max said A, B, C, D even if I know your mom and the only time that I would share this is information is to one, if you ask me and sometimes the kids have said, you need to tell our parents to stop treating us like kids, that they shouldn't, if we have done something wrong, they should not, you know, yell at us in front of the younger ones. So we will communicate that as a general message to parents who, whether we are talking to parents of 11 to 14 year old cohort group that has come to seminars, or I say the only other time we would share this information is if your life is in danger. And we've had where kids, especially the younger kids, reveal things like where they did not know that they were being sexually molested or something that wrong was happening to them. So then we will share that so that it can be, it can be taken up. So when how, we- How do you convince them that despite those experiences, they can do well? Because the trap that people fall into is that they think that those fears of those horrible experiences should hold them back rather than drive them forward. Well, as I was saying, it's you bring to them um, because you can't just keep telling them stories that you've read, that you've heard. You bring to them people who have had those experiences. Mm. So when you're talking to parents about, for instance, rape and sexual assault, you, I, I bring a woman who started the first, who was one of the first people to go public about being a rape survivor herself. So she comes and talks so that parents can understand that it is not the end of the world and what you need to do because what happened to her is she had no support system. And so she started a foundation because she said she did not want what happened to her to happen to another woman, that they would have no support, that wouldn't have nowhere to go. The, the basics that probably in a place like the UK that people know or can get information about what to do if you're, um, if you're the victim or you survive um, a, a sexual assault, those kinds of things. So she comes and talks and so that it's not the end of the world for a parent whose child experiences this, that they know how they can be supportive. For a girl or a boy who experiences this, experiences sexual assault, that they know there's a place to go and there are people who have gone through this and have survived. And it is all those kinds of different things that I think, um, I hope, let me say, mm -hmm. I hope help them. And I think they do because we, we, we've had back from those parents and we've had back from the kids. And, and it is, you know, a lot of uh, seminars, it's a lot of people coming to talk to um, to the children, even coming to talk to the women about how how do you, how do you, as a woman, what do you do when you're being disinherited? Mm. You are widowed and 
part of your family wants to take away your land and you have kids, how do you deal with that? So other women who have fought yes. and succeeded, that's, that's the example. And that from what I understand, that message is generally those things shouldn't hold you back. Exactly. They shouldn't, they sh it's not the end of the world. Even if sometimes you fight and you don't win, that it is not the end of the world. Mm. You, pick up, you pick up the pieces and you move on and you make decisions about, you know, um, that are going to help you move forward. So if you are in an abusive relationship and it's not possible for that to change, that you, you can live and live with your children. And it wouldn't be easy, right? Like there's no illusion about what that will be like. It wouldn't be easy, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. There, there's help that you can get. There's support that you can get, including from us in terms of legal help, where you can get legal help in terms of beginning life anew, in terms of having just someone who will listen and not judge you because living has never, living mm -hmm. marriages has never been a, an easy thing for people to do. And some, when somebody comes and talks to you about this, you know, confidentially, you, you say to them, what, what, what do you want out of your life? Do you want a, a situation where your son or your daughter or your children are learning that this is okay, that you put up with that, where your children are in danger? They say, no, that's, I, that's what I want to get away from. Then it is the, that difficult decision that you have to make and you have to expect this and you have to expect that. And, you know, mm -hmm. and then you also try to get them to... Um, to have some people that they can talk to. I've never left a marriage, but I know people who have. And so putting them in that, because I think sometimes people will say, well, it's easy enough for you to say that. You've never dealt with that. You've never had to handle that. So the people who have had those experiences, are, I think are the best resource that we can help provide um, so that someone feels um, empowered, somebody feels um, supported, someone feels like it can be done and, and done successfully. But they're also um, doing it step by step, right? So mm -hmm. just leave the house, mm -hmm. that sort of, because the idea of going away and building a new life is so overwhelming, mm -hmm. which is interesting because um, you're not saying they should have some big ambition. Mm -hmm. They should just sort of start pursuing the course of action they want to take and see where it takes them. You don't have to have this big idea of where you end up. No, you, and, and to also um, be realistic about what, what that means. You know, it means leaving home, it means leaving community, it means losing friends, it means losing some family even. Um, for the last five years or so, I've been working on the issue of women land rights. The fact that a lot of women till the land, work the land, but they don't own title to land in Kenya. And one of the things that I have learned in the last year from doing work with the Fight Inequality Alliance where we have rural and urban women and urban communities and rural communities working together is that some of the women who are living in the so-called slums, the informal set settlements, end up there because of issues of land. You are widowed, you are chased away from your matrimonial home, you can't go to your birth home. Where do you go? You can't go to another rural area. So you end up in the 
urban slums. It had never, it was something that I had never thought about. It's something that had never occurred to me. And um, to have this conversation with the women and to realize that this is another aspect of this land rights issue that had never been anywhere in my horizon. It's like every day you're learning. And I think that's, that's the, the important thing about listening and hearing people's stories. Because again, you see someone and you, you conclude, you can, you can look at them and say, oh, they are educated, they are not educated, they are poor, or, I mean, you can make all kinds of uh, conclusions, but actually when you hear the stories, it's, um, it, it's startling sometimes, and, um, and it's also inspiring because you begin, or I have begun, I, I begin to understand what courage people have, not, uh, because they wake up and say I'm courageous, but because they have to face the reality in their lives of impossible situations. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to wake up one morning and realize I have to go to Dandora or Kibera or one of the slums and try to begin to make a life there where I don't know anyone. Or maybe I know someone, but you know, it's a it's a completely different life. So, it's it's um it's an interesting experience for me to do the work that I do because I also want to make sure that um, those things are not happening as often as they do. You know, and it's the policies, it's the it's the implementation of that policy. It is the sort of the cultural norms that say if you're widowed in some communities you're out, you know, how do we change that so that, you know, at some point we can get to the point where no woman is being kicked out because she has become a widow. As long as she has been, then I guess it's a case of convincing her not to ignore what's happened, but to sort of own it mm -hmm. and to use it to drive her forward rather than, you know, staying in that bad marriage, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. I, I have a woman that I've gotten to know. She's a local administrator. They, 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 we have chiefs and assistant chiefs. This is a throwback to the colonial days, but they are still part of the administration. And there's a woman who is a local chief, and she is a widow herself. And she said something when we were talking about um, the issues of land rights, because in 2016, over 500 women met in uh, Arusha, the uh, foothills of Kilimanjaro, and 34 women, African women, climbed Kilimanjaro to um, to declare their demands to the African government about women land rights. So we chiefs and assistant chiefs are one of the first port of call for women on land issues. So we asked the local, the senior administrator, to let us take some women with us, and we had four women. Um, two assistant chiefs, a chief, and uh, someone who sits on the local committee that makes a lot of these decisions. So the woman who is a chief said to me, um, what I say to women is that if you're widowed, weep, grieve, but move away from the grave and focus on what next. And I think it's a really profound statement about doing what you need to do because you will cry, you will wail, you will grieve, uh, but you also need to look at tomorrow. And if you're not careful, because not everybody is well-meaning, they will 
you know, if you don't secure the documents and the the necessary um, uh, the situation in in the in the way that you need to do it, you might lose it all because you're just too consumed by uh, by grief. And she talks about, and I think it's something that is very particular about women that we have friends that we say, if this happens, I need you to pay attention to these kinds of details. And she talked, actually she was talking to women, saying to them, you need to have that friend who, when things fall apart, as they often will, who will be the one who steps up and anchors you and be your eyes and ears so that you are, you are able to grieve, but at the same time you're able to secure your future and your children's future. And, and I think that that's part of the work that we do, you know, even as an activist, is to make sure that um, the women who have suffered, who have lost their land, the women who have um, suffered in, in domestic violence or sexual and gender-based violence, that the, their experiences are uh, learning points so that it's not in so that we know what to do the next time something like that like that happens and to make sure that we uh, not because in Kenya we are very good and in a lot of countries actually very good at having policies good policies look very nice we have a fantastic constitution in Kenya but it is not implemented how do we get it implemented so that those policies actually do what they're supposed to do in terms of defending and protecting the rights of women of vulnerable communities of of children um the the environment um that the rule of law is actually functioning so that we don't continue in the ways that we have we have always continued with corruption and uh inept people um, having a lot of power and influence and the people who they're supposed to serve not getting what they need. Thank you for speaking to me. Oh, thank you. Thank you.